Welcome to Modern Family Matters, a podcast hosted by Steve Altitian, our Director of Client Partnerships here at Landerholm Family Law. We are devoted to exploring topics within the realm of family law that matter most to you. Our discussions will cover a wide range of both legal and personal issues that encompass family law matters. We strongly believe that life events such as marriages, divorces, remarriages, births, adoptions, children growing up, growing older, illnesses, and deaths do not dissolve a family. Rather, they provide the opportunity to reconfigure and strengthen family dynamics in healthy and positive ways. With expertise from qualified attorneys and professional guests, we hope that our podcast will help provide answers, clarity, and guidance towards a better tomorrow for you and your family. Without further ado, your host, Steve Altitian. Hi, everyone. It's Steve Altitian. Thanks for joining us for another broadcast of Modern Family Matters. Today, we're going to talk about DACA, the Dreamers, and how current federal immigration practices are affecting a wide range of family law issues. For our discussion today, we have two attorneys here to help. We have Lewis Landerholm, the founding partner here at Landerholm Family Law. Hey, Lewis, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Steve? I'm doing well. We also have Otis Landerholm. Otis Landerholm is the founding partner at Landerholm Immigration Law in Oakland, California. Is that right, Otis? That's right, Steve. It's great to be here. So how are you doing? So before we start in, let's sort of, you know, hit the elephant in the room, two uh, Landerholms, two law firms. So uh, what's the deal, Otis? How did that come to be? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, you know, do we know each other, Lewis? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I am. Sometimes I uh, laugh and sometimes I complain that I was beat up in my uh, childhood by Lewis uh, on the other end here. I like it. Well, hopefully no beat ups today. (laughs) He'll have to play it easy on me. There you go. I'll I'll just say I was always I was always proud. And uh, yeah, I looked up. I looked up to Lewis. You know, Uh, he was a great a great older brother. Lewis, you're a great older brother. If I haven't told you before, I'm telling you now. I like it. Thanks. Thanks. We had to we had to toughen you up a little bit. Yeah, that's good. There you go. Well, let's let's start with DACA. Um, cool. It's an acronym. A lot of people think they know what it is. A lot of people aren't sure they know what it is. So, Otis, can you kind of give us a rundown of what DACA is and maybe what DACA isn't? Yeah, you know, um, and and thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this and to have this conversation. DACA is confusing, and there are there are immigration practitioners, there are people that are policymakers that don't quite fully understand uh, what it's about. But what DACA stands for is it stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. All right. And so uh, what, what, it, what it basically does is if you imagine a child who's entered the United States uh, lawfully or unlawfully, but who is basically in the shadows, but has grown up here and they've known the United States to be their home, uh, they don't have immigration documents. And so lots of these kids, right, uh, grow up, they, their parents maybe brought them when they were quite young. 
and they don't have much in the way of a future. No uh, eligibility to apply for citizenship, no eligibility to get a green card. Uh, they're kind of stuck. Even though they've gone to our schools, grown up here, you know, there's 800,000 kids in this situation. All right. And so in 2012, the Obama administration passed a government program to give these kids not a green card, not a permanent status, but just a quote unquote deferred action, which is basically a hey, we're not going to deport you. We're going to give you a work card, a work permit, and we're going to give you the ability to apply for a social security number. It's renewable for two years at a time. And and in exchange for that, the immigrant, the, the, the child who's gone through this process, who now is you know, up to 31 years old at the, on the date that uh, they started taking the cases, those kids then were, uh, you know, had to come forward with their information, show their address history, show their family history, have no criminal history whatsoever. And then uh, uh, if they met the eligibility criteria, they could get this, uh, this document. So are these kids you're talking about, are these kids that we hear called the dreamers? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, kind, of they so, come, kind of to be called the dreamers, because, again, I think that's that's another acronym that on a bill that didn't didn't go anywhere. Congress has tried uh, several members of Congress have has introduced uh, an act called the Dream Act. All right. It was first introduced in 2001, later in 2007, later again in 2011, uh, 2010, 11 and 12. Um, and most recently, actually in 2017, it's been introduced. Um, but every time that it's hit Congress, it has not uh, made it all the way through, you know. And you might tell from current politics or whatever, immigration is a tough issue to pass anything uh, through Congress. And Congress is very divided. But really, it is Congress's failure to pass the DREAM Act which would have provided a permanent solution for this this group of kids, their failure to pass the DREAM Act is what led the Obama administration to say, hey, what can we do about this? And they ended up passing DACA, which again is not a law. It's just a government program that originally was passed for two years, and then they ended up making it renewable. But uh, but yeah, that's all it is. So DACA, of course, has been in the news this last couple of weeks. Uh, Right. Was it what now? A couple of years ago, President yep. Trump, by another executive order, uh, tried to disband the DACA program. Correct. And it was challenged. And I believe the Supreme Court last week or two weeks ago ruled that it can still go on. They didn't necessarily say it would go on forever, but it could still go on for now. So, so what is the kind of future of the Dreamers and DACA, and you know, what do you what do you foresee, Good. at least in the near future, that's going to be happening? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Steve. So, on, on June eighteenth uh, of of this year, um, the Supreme Court uh, in DHS versus the Regents of the University of California Supreme Court case about the DACA program, they said that the way that Trump terminated the DACA program was, quote unquote, arbitrary and capricious. 
uh, it's kind of the legal words, and therefore it violated the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA. But they did not say that Trump can't terminate the DACA program. They just said that the way it was terminated when he made the announcement in the executive order in 2017 didn't comply with federal law. And so, uh, in fact, uh, USCIS, which is the agency that adjudicates uh, DACA cases, it's where all your green card cases, they go through USCIS. USCIS issued a statement two days after the fact saying that they thought that the Supreme Court decision was meaningless, saying that Trump could turn around tomorrow and issue a termination of the program. And, and so practitioners like myself and many of us throughout the country are very apprehensive about uh, DACA's future. And, and really, we think that people that have DACA, you know, it's not a permanent status. And if you, if you don't have a lawyer uh, already, you want to get one and you want to see what options you might have that are more permanent, that aren't just relying on this deferred action program. It's like the sort of Damocles over these people. And, yeah. know, it's just, it's, they're just waiting for it to fall. Yeah. It's not the right way to go. So you mentioned green cards and that yes. brings another whole area where I think there's a lot of confusion. Um, Good. DACA, Eligible people aren't people with green cards. Um, could you kind of let it fill us in and, and talk about the differences between DACA and, and some of the more traditional res residence requirements and statuses that we have? Good, good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when I explain like immigration law, like the whole, the whole thing, right? Like what do immigration lawyers even do? you know, it can be broken down into, into basically five things. All right. The first are what we call visas. You know, sometimes people need to need a visa to enter a new country. Right. The second thing that we do are green cards, like, like what you brought up family based, or there are other types of green card categories. The third is asylum and then U S citizenship and then removal defense, deportation defense. That's basically all that immigration law talks about. Green cards, and, and just to be clear, DACA is not any of that. It's not a law. It's like nothing, all right? It really is. People have the short end of the stick if they have, if they have DACA. I mean, it's better than being undocumented, but just barely, all right? Green cards, like you mentioned, are a thousand times better. They're a thousand times better. Why? Because they're permanent. They give you the right to work any job you want to in the United States. They give you the ability to apply for citizenship after five years. It's like if you've got a green card, like, you know, we have one or two phone calls. So I run a law firm in the Bay Area. We get one or two phone calls maybe a month about people trying to apply for DACA. But we have people lining up out of our office trying to get a green card. Like a green card is worth something. If you've got a green card, you want to fight for it, right? Because it's like, it's like a real legal benefit that allows you to travel in and out of the U.S., allows you to work freely in the U.S., and gives you the, the, the right to take advantage of U.S. law. Wow. It, you, know, you hear this term, the path to citizenship, and again, it gets conflated with DACA, but that really isn't DACA. There is no path to citizenship through DACA. That's where you need something like the DREAM Act. 
Yes, that's right. That's exactly it. And that's exactly it, right? That's the frustration that DACA provides zero path to anything. Right. 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 So and, one thing, going back a little bit, you talked about the age of the DACA folks. Good. And that they're now getting it to be in their 30s. Yep. Which kind of leads us into the second part of our discussion, which is, you know, immigration status, immigration law in general, and family law, and how they interact and affect each other, not always in very good ways. And um, so, what I kind of like maybe to, to explore on that is, you know, We'll start with, you know, maybe the marriage, you know, before Good. we get into comes the other things. But I know that, like you said, marriage really is not depend or a green card is not dependent on or it can be dependent on getting married. That's right. Um, but DACA doesn't have that green card. So, again, DACA and marriage don't necessarily mix. Let me kind of yes. elaborate a little bit on that. I love it. I love it. Perfect. So um, DACA is not a family-based immigration benefit, right? Green cards, though, can be. So, so here's the scenario, right? One of these kids uh, on DACA now gets married. What do they do? All right. Say they get married to somebody who's a U.S. citizen. Okay, great. A U.S. citizen has the right to file what we call an immigration petition for a foreign national spouse, all right, for a spouse, regardless of where they are and regardless of, of where they come from, all right? Now, the question is, is can the spouse use that petition, all right? Can the spouse use that to apply for their own green card? And lots of people do, all right? And so, you know, if there's a kid who's on DACA and marries a U.S. citizen, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, they can use that marriage to then get a green card. Well, Lewis, that kind of brings in marriage, especially if a marriage is, is really based just on trying to get a dream card, maybe. And then divorce. Do you, do you see this in, when you're on your practice, when people come in who, who are in this situation where they are, either have green cards or are, are undocumented and they're trying to figure out what to do? Yeah, we see it. We see it all the time. We see it in a couple of different ways. The and I've got a couple of questions for Otis also to uh, that I think our clients would be interested in. So, the first piece is the the folks who come on a conditional green card. Their green card is conditioned on being married, and then inevitably something happens and they want to get a divorce. Either party. What happens with the green card is a question that always comes up. Also, the you know in that green card there is um, there's a requirement that that they be supported by somebody here in, in in the U.S. So, I guess Otis, if you could talk a little bit about what that looks like and and how the system treats those renewals or um, that issue with green cards. Yeah, thank you. So, if a person comes into the United States or has a conditional green card where it's conditional on their marriage, and now they start to go through a divorce, it can cause a serious problem for their immigration case. All right. The first thing, you know, we're, we're lawyers, 
the first thing to advise is if you're in that process, you want to get an immigration lawyer who can help you through your immigration case, just like you're going to want a good family attorney who can help you with your divorce process. All right. The way it works, though, is that often immigration will interview you. They'll interview your spouse. They'll ask about the marriage. They'll ask about what happened to the marriage. All right. They want to determine that that marriage wasn't entered into solely for immigration purposes. Because if it was, it's called a quote unquote sham marriage and it makes a person deportable, right? They'll cancel that green card, they'll kick you out. So if you're going through that process, you want to prepare the request to remove your conditions very carefully. You want to prepare it with the best evidence you can possibly put together so that you maximize your chances of removing the conditions and then, and then getting on with your green card. The second question that you asked is more about the quote-unquote sponsorship requirement. And the sponsorship requirement is a requirement for going through the green card process. You've got to show that there's enough money there where you're not going to rely on the government for subsistence. Uh, subsistence. So in other words, you've got to show that you're not going to be, the legal term is a quote-unquote public charge on the like welfare system, food stamps, et cetera. Um, so yeah, you've got to show there's enough money. And people do need sponsors that have immigration papers and who are willing to sign and kind of vouch for the, the intending immigrant uh, so that they're, they're putting their finances at stake too and saying, yo, uh, we are uh, in agreement that this person will not become dependent on the state for any reason. And so for those folks who already have this green card, yep. they've got a conditional green card, it's already been granted, they're through the process, and then they want to get a divorce or, and say their sponsor is either their spouse or, or a family member who then no longer wants to be required to sponsor this person. Yeah, are there any ramifications when a divorce is filed? Good. Uh, the sponsorship requirement will go on. The sponsorship agreement actually goes through a divorce. Uh, and so, uh, for example, when you sign on the, on the dotted line for sponsorship, you're saying you're going to sponsor that immigrant for up to 10 years or until that immigrant becomes a U.S. citizen. All right. And, uh, and, and, you know, the, uh, divorce settlement or a arrangement in uh, state court cannot undo it because of the supremacy clause. Federal laws trump the state law divorce proceeding. And so the immigration issue can be a serious thing to, you don't want to overlook it. And that's actually the importance of working with a great uh, family law attorney, a, a divorce attorney on your case who gets this stuff, because they want to really analyze how the sponsorship issues in your case will, will affect you going forward. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And that's why we refer people to good immigration attorneys, because they need to, you know, the stuff's complicated and you don't want to end up in removal proceedings by messing it up and, uh, you know, and doing something that you don't want to. So Lewis, if, if I may, I have a question for you. Sure. From your perspective, how does the immigration issue come up in a divorce process, like, like in, in, in the court process, for example? So a number of different ways. The first is, is obviously the easiest one. If you have 
undocumented uh, litigants and and parties, then it dramatically impacts how the um, how we handle them as attorneys. We have, you know, we obviously know that while state courts are are not supposed to take into consideration into consideration immigration status, inevitably that's a public record. That those are public documents. It is something that most uh, most immigrants who are undocumented don't want to go to court. You know, they there is their right to fight for their case. It's their their right to go to court and not have a circuit court judge, at least here in Oregon, take that into consideration. But the concern would be to, you know, avail yourself to the courts, to the system. And that's a scary thing for a lot of people. So, you know, we we typically handle those out of court the majority of the time. We're trying to negotiate um, to be able to walk that line. From a custody standpoint, it's obviously something that can affect a case. You've got, say you've got one party who is a citizen and one party who is undocumented. The, the party who's a citizen is inevitably going to be in court. And if there's a custody determination, say this person may or may not be in the country for any given amount of time. How can we give custody, custody of kids to a person who may potentially get deported? So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of issues. You know, it's something that that is irrelevant technically in the case itself, but it inevitably comes into play and it does impact the case, um, especially on the kids side. Not as much on the asset side. The asset side can be worked out a little bit more simply as non-citizens can own property in the U.S. and and that that part's easier. But on the on the kids side of things, it definitely creates um, com- uh, complexity. Mm-hmm. That's really awesome that you're able to help a client from like a like a human perspective. If they're afraid to go into a courtroom, you're able to help them out and do as much as possible, settle stuff, get stuff done that really still protects their interests, but do as much possible outside of outside of the family court. So uh, that's just like another another reason to have a a lawyer who can give them good advice through the process. So anyway, I'm happy. I'm happy to hear that you're able to do that for people. Yeah, we do it as much as we can. Obviously, the other side has to get on board with that. But uh, you know, typically um, that makes sense for you know for the parties in general. Good. Well, you guys, you guys were talking about children, and that you know, obviously in a divorce, husband and wife have their issues. Are but what what can happen to children, or what if a let's say an undocumented parent or maybe they're both undocumented get a divorce and end up leaving the country having to leave i mean what's the deal with the children do they do they get some sort of special status or are they just not there fending for themselves yeah those are some of the saddest cases you know we've seen it in our office where parents get deported and then our uh, the children come into our office uh asking how they can help them you know, help them to come back. Right. And, uh, but some, we've seen it where after a deportation, sometimes the children will go with the parents back to their home country, or sometimes after a deportation, they will have a family member, an uncle or an aunt or something here in the U S who will apply through the family courts for a guardianship so that they have like a new custodian, legal, legal guardian, uh, here in the U S that can, um, take care of the legal essentials for the child's well-being. 
but yeah, those are sad cases. Well, you you talked about the the uh, monetary, you know, the the financial promise of the sponsor. If the sponsor can't uh, do it anymore, they just they they lose their ability to do it through whatever or refuse. Can that be a trigger to have the person deported? Not specifically. However, so there, there's two things that come to my mind right there. The first is if the person ends up becoming what they call a quote unquote public charge, like say they need welfare, right? Say they need some social benefit. Then what the sponsorship requirement means is that the government is going to come after the sponsor and say, hey, you owe us money. All right. You you signed on the line saying you were going to support this person and you didn't because now they're on welfare. And so you've got to reimburse us the to the to the amount of whatever public benefit, social section eight housing, you know, welfare, food stamps, whatever that benefit value was, uh, the sponsor is going to have to re- reimburse it. And if the sponsor can't, then they're going to have to deal with the IRS. I mean, they're going to have to deal with liens on their property, bank accounts, assets. I mean, they're going to be collected against. Well, they don't generally then turn around and go after the, the sponsored person. No, no. It's not like a, it's not like a criminal issue or it doesn't cause deportation per se. Yeah. So, so Louis, um, can, can you fill us a little bit on if you do have undocumented or green card or just, you know, immigrants coming in to, to have, let's say a, a divorce. I mean, can, are you able to help them on all of those issues that that can come into play? Temporary support, child support, visitation, parenting time, all of those things. Are you able to work with them on all of those issues that really are needed? Oh, absolutely. Everything's available in the circuit courts. Um, the circuit courts do not ask for immigration status, um, or at least they're not supposed to ask for immigration status in family law. Cases in some criminal cases, they there are um, circumstances where you do have to say whether you're a citizen or not. But uh, that is not something that that has to be discussed or or talked about in a circuit court case. So you can absolutely use the use the courts to you know for custody support you know all of the above. It's obviously a little more complicated with uh, with the fact that. You know, typically for garnishments and for those type of things, um, there's not always you know wages and W twos to be able to get support, get uh, child support. Um, so there are you know there's obviously more complicating factors with with cases like that. But we can have everything's available under the law in the U.S. At least in Oregon. In in dealing with clients, I mean, obviously, then there can be some clients who are are either non English speaking or or not fluent in English. Um, how are you able to help those guys? So we have um, we have a Spanish team on on staff. So we have Spanish speaking attorneys who work in both our Oregon um, locations and Vancouver, as well as Spanish speaking support staff. You know, throughout the the ranks of the firm, so that we can um, you know so we can uh, represent the Spanish speaking community. Um, we don't have any other languages on staff, but uh, um, that you know, the, our, our Spanish-speaking clients um, are you know, we're able to take care of them. 
I notice I believe you you also um, you just have Spanish speaking. Do you have additional languages um, for clients that you help with? Yeah, we so I I speak Spanish and I speak Mandarin Chinese, and uh, and we do have clients from all over and and in staff. Everyone on my team speaks English and Spanish. Uh, attorneys, paralegals, every single person on my on my team does. Uh, and we have interpreters that are really great that we can get uh, in touch just on a moment's notice on the phone. We're very it's very frequent that we'll be speaking with clients that speak Arabic or that speak Thai or that speak Mongolian or other languages. And so, uh, yeah, we're uh, we we love it actually. It's part of part of the fun of doing immigration law. <laughs> and then I should say, sorry, Steve, but I should okay, say that, okay. you know, we can, you know, we work with translators as well. So even though we don't have them on staff, it's, you know, it's something that, uh, that we do all the time. Cool. Uh, we have, I should just do we have a pretty good list of non-English speaking or folks who, who can deal with non-English speaking clients in financial, in housing and you know i think we were talking about a guy who does itin loans you mm-hmm. know which you know people are able to buy houses even though they don't have a social security number so it's kind of cool to do all that which kind of dovetails into the kind of the last thing i wanted to talk about which was not necessarily well maybe somewhat the legal but the legal and practical issues of access and and Compounded by fear of the unknown, um, again until there is a Dream Act or there is just any kind of you know appropriate immigration policy. <laughs> which <there> Thank is. <laughs> you. <laughs> but until then, it's going to be hard just convincing people not to be worried because you know the history of how they've been treated isn't the greatest. To so say true. The so well, true. What do you see? Do, do you, Otis, do you see that that as a problem? Just people who are afraid to connect with the legal system. Absolutely. You know, right now there are 11 million people who are undocumented in the United States. A huge number, right? And uh, and 800,000, as we as I mentioned earlier, are on DACA right now. And it's like it's a huge it's a huge problem, and it's not going away. And um, yeah, I really want our, you know, it's not just the Trump administration. It's like federal government, period. Uh, Congress, it's the whole thing. I want, I want uh, our, our leadership to take uh, this issue seriously from a, you know, these are, these are human beings involved. And like, they are for, you know, lawful, unlawful, whatever the debate is, they are a part of our community, all right? And for people that are in that situation, if you're going through a divorce, if you're going through life changes, if you're going to have a new birth in your family, if you're going to need a will because you're going to, you know, someone's facing the end of their life, like don't be afraid to assert your rights as a contri- contribution to our community even if our community isn't giving you a quote unquote document. All right. There, even though you don't have a quote unquote document, you still do have rights. And it's important that people know that and understand that and talk to lawyers that get this stuff 
and help you to exert your rights because you have them. All right. And so don't be afraid to fight your child custody case. Don't be afraid to fight, you know, to file for divorce if you're in a relationship that's not working for you. Don't be afraid to do what you need to do. And certainly, you know, talk to an immigration lawyer who's, who can have your back going through any process and, and see what options are available to you there. But really, my message for people is, you know, Congress and the law and stuff, it will get its act together someday. All right. But in the meantime, you've got to live your life here now and do the things like don't don't back down from living your life. Like if if you need a divorce, go get one. If you need to fight for your kids, fight for your kids. All right. Because like as far as we know, this whole thing called life, you only got one shot. So like take (laughs) advantage of it. I love it. That that that's terrific advice. Hey, Lewis, you got any last words? No, that was better than what I would say anyway. So I'll uh, I'll stick with that. <laughs> brother to brother, I love yeah. it. Yeah, I just throw in that I used to work for a company that that did um, preschool for migrants in Oregon, and you talked about the economic boom. Every summer, three hundred fifty thousand migrants work in Oregon. And you know, create a huge boon to the economy. So I mean, got to be able to just got to be able to to deal with everybody in this in this country. Yeah, and, absolutely. And with that, I just really want to thank you, Otis. That is wonderful. Thank you, Lewis. This this was a terrific terrific Facebook Live, and I really hope people who have any questions feel free to send them to me. Steve Altitian, and it's at steve at landerhomelaw.com. Just shoot me a question, and I'll try to get it to one of these guys, and maybe we can get you answered. Also, if there's anyone out there who would like to be a guest, send me an email, or who has a suggestion for another topic, another day, send me an email. So again, I hope everybody has really learned a lot about this. It's confusing, but I think these guys made it a lot clearer. And with that, guys... Thanks a lot. Thank you, people, for tuning in. And everyone, until next time, you know, stay safe, stay healthy, enjoy the fourth, and thanks and bye. You're listening to Modern Family Matters, a legal podcast focusing on providing real answers and direction for individuals and families as they navigate the growth, changes, and challenges of creating their new family dynamics. Modern Family Matters is sponsored by Landerholm Family Law, serving Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, and devoted to providing clients with compassionate and fierce legal advocacy with a firm belief in the importance of upholding the family unit amidst complex transitions. If you are in need of legal counsel or have additional questions about a family law matter important to you, you can visit our Landerholm Family Law website at www.landerholmelaw.com or call us at 503-227-0200 to schedule a case evaluation with one of our seasoned attorneys. Modern Family Matters, advocating for your better tomorrow and offering solutions on legal matters important to the modern family.